0: Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I sit down with Fordham professor, Dr. Mary Bly. We discuss Shakespeare and pop culture. But first, Fordham Conversation producer, Dan Murphy, talks with some people on the street to find out what they think of Shakespeare and his influence today. Could I have your uh, name, please?
1: Paul Ross. And uh, where are you from? It's great in Pennsylvania.
0: And how do you think that
1: Shakespeare is relevant to uh, culture in general now? Well, I mean, he's a massive literary figure who coined a significant amount of words in the English language and is like one of the great masters of playwriting. You can't just discount that. And uh, do you feel that he is being well represented or his work is being recreated in a positive light now? I would say so, yeah. there There's a fair amount of traditional representation of people like doing his plays accurately as they would have done them then, and then people trying to adapt them into like a more modern scenario. Why do you think that Shakespeare has been, as you said, so well-known and respected and continues to have that recognition? Well, because he has, he has an enormous canon, and almost all of it is of a very high caliber, and it's worth reading. I mean, there are other important playwrights who are his contemporaries, but Shakespeare just lasted because he did so much that was like new and innovative and impactful. And I think if you do that, it becomes important and can stay important. Do you feel that you've kind of started to realize when you're reading Shakespeare from, say, high school and now you're in college, do you think that it's kind of changed like how you perceive it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's tough to look at it as, a, like, something worthwhile in high school. Could I
2: please? Rose Sherman from Sugarland, Texas. Do you feel Shakespeare
1: is uh, relevant to today's society?
2: Yeah. Um, he teaches us about a form of storytelling that I don't think is really as prevalent anymore. I think his work is timeless because you can read it, you know, the same play or the same story over and over and over again and really feel a different emotion or get something new out of it each time, and I think that's special, and I don't know if that necessarily happens, especially with more, like, modern work now.
1: And speaking of modern work, do you see an influence from Shakespeare on a lot of modern forms of art?
2: I think maybe more in, like, um, plays and dramas than in, like, just um, novels. He kind of created the storyline, I guess, of, you know, going, you know, the big build-up, you know? I wouldn't say he created it, but... He teaches us how to form a dramatic story.
0: Fordham professor Mary Bly is a Shakespearean scholar who's taken her passion for the English poet and playwright and created the class Shakespeare and Popular Culture. Mary's here to share her thoughts about arguably one of the most well-known writers of all times, his legacy, and what students think about his work. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming in. So in your first class, you tackle what some may consider a debated subject in teaching highbrow or lowbrow. How do you go about introducing this to students?
3: Well, on the first day, I actually come in with a lot of objects because I'm not saying they're kindergartners, but it's still really interesting to see. Pop culture is not a matter of something floating in the air. It's it's in everything around us. So I bring in, for example, a little box that's got something on it, a tiny cat figure, and it's called Shakespeare right? (laughs) And then I bring in, I have um, flashcards for Shakespeare. And then I have a game called um, Shakespeare Cocktails. And, you know, you're supposed to play it in a sort of very intellectual family might play this game. It's hard to imagine who would play it. And then I have Shakespeare Mints. And I have a wife beater that says Shakespeare is my homeboy (laughs) on the front. And I, you know, I just have a whole range of things. And I bring them in. And then I say, Let's talk about these. Is this highbrow? Is this lowbrow? Let's start to think about where Shakespeare is, because he's one of the few writers that goes right from the top to right at the bottom. I mean, he Shakespeare is meant for someone who may not even be literate, literate right. in that they know Shakespeare, and then they think I think it's a
0: cute cat figure. They think
3: it's a cute cat figure, and it's part of a whole series. You can get, you know, Beethoven purr or whatever too. So you got all these sort of classical icons brought down to a manageable level. And then at the same time, you have things that only someone who is highly literate and wants to, you know, impress their friends with their literacy. That is another thing. So in that first class, we talk about Shakespeare as cultural capital, which means kind of a a money uh, that you pass among each other to prove your status. So it's not money, but it has currency, just like money. You prove yourself of this class or that class or the other class. And that's true all over the Western canon, all over the Western world.
0: So how do the students relate with this you know, highbrow, lowbrow explanation of who Shakespeare is?
3: Well, they just get really interested because instantly they think, they say, oh, you know, my aunt has a Shakespeare action figure. And so then we discuss the Shakespeare action figure. And I have it too, you know, because many students have given me the Shakespeare active figure. I have many of them because it's the present. But... They love then being able to tackle a Shakespeare in a much more manageable way that shows them that he's part of the fabric of our culture. And that's what this class is about. This class is, yes, let's read Romeo and Juliet, but now let's talk about what he actually means in your life. You know, one of the things I do, for example, is show them a few clips of the Senate. Everything said in the Senate is online. You can do a search for Shakespeare. It'll pop up over and over. And over. people quoting Shakespeare.
0: Oh, wow. So the government is actually using Shakespeare well, in...
3: The senators in all their hot air. They're like, let me impress you. I'm going to quote from Hamlet.
0: Mary, why do you think Shakespeare has lasted this long? He, His writings and and his
3: influence i think he had two things going for him one is that he's an incredible storyteller so he really was very low culture at the time very pop culture they there is one of the first books of literary criticism that talks about everyone you know other authors and at the very end puts shakespeare and says you know he's a nice guy because he was essentially a soap opera writer at the time he was he wrote the first titus andronicus is like the cone brothers version of violence uh romeo and juliet is like eroticism for that time. There you know, was nothing like that on the stage. So he was viewed as very kind of low class. At the same time, everyone wanted to see his plays. Because he's both a terrific writer, so he's able to talk about very deep emotion and put it in a, in, in a sort of a plot that's fun to watch. So he has it all. He has the language and the plot. He has the drive and the philosophy.
0: One professor might say, you know, it's my duty to help students appreciate sophisticated cultural life. And another might say, you know, let's help students learn by using popular cultural references that they understand. Mary, is the issue as simple as teaching one style
3: versus the other? No, it's actually two different subjects. So when I'm teaching the Shakespeare lecture, I like to team-teach with Matthew McGuire, who's the head of the theater program. And the reason for that is at that point in that class, we are actually studying the plays. So I teach the historical context of this play, what it meant at the time. Matthew teaches what you can do with that play now in a theater. So that's a very different class than, let's talk about what Shakespeare is in our culture. Let's talk about why he shows up in so many advertisements. If you look at the five most recognized icons worldwide, so that's everywhere, Shakespeare has two in the top five. The skull from Hamlet and the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet. Hmm. They are an infinite number of advertisements. So I think that Shakespeare and pop culture is really a study of our culture and the way in which we use literature and it becomes part of our fabric, the way in which he's become an icon separate from himself. So he's a garden statue and kids are taught that before they can even really speak. They are learning about Shakespeare before they can, you know, you got toddlers sitting in front of Romeo and Juliet, watching it over and over and over. They are learning Romeo and Juliet before they knew Romeo and Juliet exists. Why
0: did you choose to focus, you know, a lot of your study, on you're, you're a scholar. Why did you choose to focus um, your career or part of your career on Shakespeare? What drew you to
3: either he or his writing? I think he's a tremendously interesting writer. I mean, the best thing in the world for a professor is if when you're teaching a play, you learn something new every semester. If, if, if you're teaching in a less fertile field, you get bored, you start calling it in. That's not good for me. It's not good for my students. But I feel that Shakespeare is so fluid because it's a play. It's reinterpreted by every generation. So what I was teaching in a classroom 10 years ago is not what I'm teaching now because I'm not interested in the same things, but Shakespeare is fluid enough to move with me. So I would teach The Winter's Tale, for example, when I had a very small child who was quite ill. She has a chronic illness. And in The Winter's Tale, the young boy dies. And that play meant a lot to me at the time. I have stopped teaching it. I never teach King Lear, but at some point, I'm going to start teaching my my Fordham Students, King Lear, that's a play about growing old. Well, why, and I'm why, not why, there why? yet. Okay, so you're not there yet. <laughs> no, I'm not quite <laughs> there yet, but I'm saving it because Shakespeare is capacious and large, and I'm so lucky to have all these plays that I can switch and, and learn with and grow with, and none of my students grow with me.
0: So is the answer really that Shakespeare and his writings can speak to almost any Level that we happen to be as human beings, whether it be age, whether it be an emotional mm-hmm. state, whether it be a, a physical or health state.
3: Right. Is I that... wouldn't say he's the only one, but I do think that he has that, his work has that ability. Some work is directed much more narrowly at a certain segment of the population, for example. But great literature, and I include Shakespeare as one of these, but not the only, can speak to everyone at any level. So. You know, that, and that includes lots of, of novelists, poets, you name it. There's something for
0: everyone we, in a Shakespeare play. We create play. that
3: work when we read it, right? We see something different. When you read Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, you got something different than I did, right? Right. right. I remember being struck, utterly struck in that novel by childhood cruelty. Mm-hmm. But I'd been bullied on the bus. Right. You know, whereas <laughs> other people, you're going to bring yourself to the novel and see this wonderful evocation of something you want to learn.
0: So I think that's it with good writing in general. Yeah. You know, good writing will, exactly. will you'll, you'll be able to take or see a piece of yourself or, or a piece mm-hmm. of who maybe you want to be in right. that writing. So, Mary. Um, so what are the the Shakespeare plays that you teach is Romeo and Juliet. OK, so I have to I'm going to put this out there. Your mom, mm-hmm. your preteen child, you know, comes to you and says, I met the love of my life this this afternoon and. Um, And we want to get married by nightfall. And obviously, you know, Romeo and Juliet's parents say, heck no. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they end up running away and killing themselves. So why is this considered one of the most famous love stories, you know, iconic love stories? It's sad and
3: tragic. And why is it always seen as a love story? Because it is a love story. There's several things there. One is that they're on opposing political sides. So, you know, it worked. It worked. Humans fight. We create battles. We other the other person. This, this is a story of love between two combating tribes, in a sense. And there's a deep wish in all of us for peace. And so the idea that two very young people could fall in love shows that they're not the othered person, right? They're someone who can be loved. It also says, you know, love is the real architecture of the world not hate not war so that's one thing the other thing is that Romeo and Juliet is a very interesting play because it actually opens with a chorus that says these are star-crossed lovers they will die right so Shakespeare set himself an incredible challenge you know they're gonna die will you like the play
0: Was there one particular Shakespeare story that resonated more with your students? We talked about Romeo and Juliet. You also covered Hamlet uh, in your your class. Um, Was there one particular story that resonated more with your, your
3: students than another? Well, I think in that Shakespeare and pop culture class, we talked mostly about Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet because those are the ones that have the most impact on our culture now. I would say that one interesting thing is I taught Twelfth Night this year in my Shakespeare class, and I was really interested by how much students like that. That is a class about cross-gendering and about dressing in other, other clothes, being addressed by a man if you're a woman. Um, you know, there's a, there's a near homoerotic kiss on the stage, and and of course that fit in with one of their, one of the most interesting things about this generation is they're redefining our sexual and gender norms, right? So. They they were all LGBTQ Shakespeare's a Q look, <laughs> it's a Q No. I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah.
0: So that's the one that they kinda uh, yeah, gravitated and I towards. It too.
3: So Mary, um, who's the
0: sassy gay
3: friend? Well, if you type into Google, sassy gay friend and Romeo and Juliet, you're going to come up with a wonderful series of short vignettes. originally came out of Second City in in Chicago, the improv group. And this is the idea that if Juliet, for example, had had a sassy gay friend, which of course is a staple in our culture now, she never would have committed suicide. So the sassy gay friend comes and tosses his apricot scarf and she's like, I love him. And he says, what are you talking about? And, And he Basically talks her out of it. And then he's like, come on, let's go get a drink. And she says, oh, okay, because she's 13. He's like, you're in love? You're 13. (laughs) Get over it. (laughs) And off she goes. And he also has a very funny one with Lady Macbeth. What do you mean you want to murder someone? Can we talk, you know, OCD? (laughs) It's it's tremendously funny. So that was a series that ran on Second City. On There was one of the original uh, video blogs. And it just gained a lot of popularity in pop culture. That sounds a lot like a lot of fun.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Fordham professor Mary Bly about Shakespeare and popular culture. Mary in your class Shakespeare and popular culture you chose Macbeth and Hamlet as we said um are there any lesser known remakes of these stories that have come out currently that we we might not even relate that hey that that's directly taken from Shakespeare
3: so i see things like that very much i mean now shakespeare is quite popular so you see actual film remakes you know steadily one a year at least
0: right and Romeo and Juliet, as we know, is just on Broadway. Right, right, you know?
3: right. In two different versions. Yeah.
0: And going back to talk a little bit about Hamlet in your class, uh, I've heard you know the character of Hamlet sort of described as someone who speaks to people who are out of place in their own world. Do you see that your students tend to relate to this aspect of Hamlet's character?
3: No, they tend to be extremely critical of Hamlet, frankly. Really? Why? Well, they're young. And, you know, Hamlet finds out from the ghost— um, who seems to be pretty verifiable, that he was murdered. And then he, he delays. That's the whole play. He's like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And, you know, my students are very young. They're like, what is his problem? Just get a knife and do it. <laughs> so uh, he's got the sword, and he's like, well, he's praying. If I kill him now, he'll go to heaven. I can't have him go to heaven. And my students are like, just kill him. Let <laughs> Course they're, kind of pragmatic. They're, yeah, <laughs> their faith level is pretty low as well. So okay. <laughs> they don't believe in heaven. They're just like off with his head.
0: So what makes Hamlet, uh, both the character and the play, iconic in your eyes?
3: I think he's a very interesting character because he does have a strong motive for action and he doesn't act. He's afraid. And um, it's unusual for a hero to be afraid. He is both beta and alpha at the end. He gets into Sword fight kills people, etc. But he's definitely beta in the beginning, and and there is also the great, you know, scene with Desdemona. So there's a love story in there, and then she commits suicide. I mean, so many things happen in those five acts, and he has a tremendously sort of Oedipal relationship with his mother, which creates this really you know, violent, sexually inflected scene with his mother. So, I mean, there's just so many parts of sort of human nature in there. We don't want to kill someone. We want to revenge someone. You want to sleep with your mother, maybe. You you, you like this girl. You deny her. She commits suicide because she's a teenager, basically. You know, his life is so complicated. All over the place.
0: When I first read Hamlet, I thought he lost his mind.
3: Oh, well, Is yeah. that
0: an interpretation? I hope sure. I'm not the only one. Okay. Oh, no, no, no.
3: <laughs> Hamlet has been reinterpreted every generation, and our generation has been quite interested in mental illness, obviously. So I did see a performance in London by in which Daniel Day-Lewis was playing Hamlet, and he seemed, to me, to be having extreme problem with twitches, and at some point he fell on the floor writhing. So clearly Daniel Day-Lewis and the director of that Hamlet had interpreted Hamlet having something along the lines of you know, some sort of fit. Um, I've definitely seen it where he's seeing hallucinations. So the ghost is a hallucination. Part of the problem that's hard with the plays is that in the period Shakespeare's audience believed in witches. For example, if we talk about Macbeth, they believed in witches and they were terrified by witches. Well, we don't believe in witches anymore. So how do you create that terror on the stage? Generally now we go for the supernatural And they they tend to be something like um, bloodied nurses, for example, during World War II, because we're afraid of the medical profession. So they should show up covered with blood and they kill people. Ah!
0: So in this particular interpretation, I guess any actor could interpret it Mm -hmm. the way or any writer could interpret that character the way they wanted to.
3: Yeah. I guess these plays have to be remade or they're dead.
0: Mary one of your classes is dedicated to pop music and you said it's for you have from taylor swift to to bob dylan so what happens during that class
3: well they often don't realize how much pop music is based on shakespeare right they will have realized with with taylor swift because it's called i think romeo and juliet right (laughs) she makes it easy for you yes she's right out there but um Bob Dylan also makes it interesting because he, he, he talks about, you know, he puts Shakespeare characters into his songs, actually, sort of represent various things like old lovers of his. And it can be really, really interesting to kind of parse those and pull them apart and and see where Shakespeare's coming into our language in what sense. Like, does Romeo and Juliet always, as in the case of Taylor Swift, represent lost love? Um, does, does Hamlet represent sort of revenge? Does... Um, and one person who gets a lot of airplay is Othello. Othello and Macbeth are very very big in heavy metal music. Really? There's a tremendous amount of Shakespeare in heavy metal music. It's those are that's music that's often about anger, not always, and those Macbeth's a very angry, angry man, and so it works. One example of the things we look at are for example a song by the the group Dire Straits an English rock band called Romeo and Juliet. And this was an extremely popular song when it first came out. Um, it it hit number 19 on the Billboard's Top 200 list. It was a huge video in 1995. And th- th- it was right at the beginning they came out with Money for Nothing, for example. They were a very popular band. And that's really interesting for my kids. I, we look at that. They don't know Dire Straits all that much because they're you know young. Mm-hmm. 1995 was when they were born or whatever. But... Um, then we look at the Indigo Girls, who remade that same song, Romeo and Juliet, and the Indigo Girls, 12 years later in 1992, took it to number 21 on the billboard chart. But they remade the same song into kind of an anthem of gay pride and gay strength. So the same words become so mutable, and the kids really don't know the Indigo Girls. So when I show them the video, they're watching, and I say, why did this hit number 21? You know, it's the same song. What's happened? And it's because the Romeo character now is a woman singing to Juliet. And they finally get in there like, oh. Right. I think that's a gay anthem. I'm like, yes, it is. Right. But it was Dire Straits hit it straight as a rock and roll song. So you can just see that the fluidity of Shakespeare even as a topic moving through rock music.
0: Right. And as we were saying before, not just how the writer or the actor interprets um the character for their audience, but how the singer yeah. is it might change the words to speak to their personal experience at the time, or maybe exactly. the audience's personal experience at the time. I'm getting this, Mary. Right,
3: I'm right. Amy Ray it. didn't actually change her, but she only changed a few words, but she changed her intonation. Yeah, and she was who she was. So the, when we watch the video, the minute she starts strumming the first, you know, the first chords, the entire audience erupts. They're just screaming because it was their song. Right.
0: So what part of uh, the Shakespeare assignments do your students seem to struggle the most with? Is there something universally that they're all challenged by?
3: In Shakespeare and pop culture? Mm -hmm.
0: In your class, Shakespeare and pop culture.
3: What they have a problem with is actually coming up with an argument. They're extremely good at gathering information, right? But I always say you have to argue something. I have to be able to say you're wrong. And, you know, I have a very fluid kind of brain. I can say anything's wrong. And I'm not going to, that doesn't mean that I'm going to say you're wrong, but if you say something to me and it says the sky is blue, I can't say you're wrong because you didn't really say anything interesting. So I think the hardest thing is not just gathering, you know, oh, I found, you know, I found the Taylor Swift, Romeo and Juliet song. Look at this. Isn't this interesting? You have to say, why did that song resonate so much right now? What is the words? What was in the video? Why did it hit this generation?
0: So the challenge with critical thinking when it comes to Shakespeare, yeah, is that we arguing something. Does anybody in your class find the language
3: difficult? Oh yeah, yeah, they do. But we talk through it, and um, and they're very able at using videos to help them. So I and I support that to a certain extent. I mean, I say, go use Netflix, watch three different versions of Romeo and Juliet with your book right there. You're going to understand the language because when they see it visually, you understand it.
0: Right. A little off topic here. Um, the new Common Core standards for English language arts say students in grade seven and eight should be exposed to text written in quote-unquote archaic languages like Shakespearean. So do you think that would be beneficial?
3: I think it's a great idea that they're exposed to archaic texts, partly because the text they're speaking will be archaic by the time they're 60. Our language is changing so fast. And we're a global economy. You have to be able to interpret people who speak the language in different ways than you do, you know? We've all had the experience of speaking to someone who's speaking English or perhaps even a foreign language, but also English, who's speaking essentially in a dialect that you don't understand. And we have to realize that what comes out of our mouth is not the universal standard. And why specifically Shakespeare?
0: What would they gain out of that, do you think?
3: Well, then I think, I mean, he's one of our best writers. So then they carry a little bit of that ideas with them when they learn the language. I also get my kids to memorize language because I think to carry with you the ideas in Lady Macbeth, for example, in Macbeth, in Hamlet, as you go into your life, we don't have very much time when we stop and think ethically. And Shakespeare thought ethically a good deal of time, do you revenge? Do you kill yourself? Do you murder someone? What is the impact of murdering someone? How does that ruin the society? How does it change the society? And so if you learn those things, and you sort of work through the language, it makes you think more about what's actually going on, because once you understand it, you're thinking hard. You take that with you into your life. Not all of our kids are going to be going to Mass every Sunday. A great percentage of them won't. And so they need ethical thought wherever they can get it.
0: You don't allow electronic versions of books in your class. How come?
3: Well, for one thing, if they have an electronic version, they open up their laptop and I can see instantly they're on Facebook. (laughs) So... I actually had in my class yesterday, Christina Baker-Klein, who um, is is in my publishing class. Christina Baker-Klein is right now number one on the New York Times list for Orphan Train, which is a wonderful book, uh, novel. It's one of the biggest books of the year. And she looked out and she said, why are you all writing with pens and paper? <laughs> and they were all like, oh. Because Ms. Bly said we have to. Because I don't let them. I You know, if they have a a documented disability obviously they can use electronic thing but otherwise i find that i need their attention they paid a lot of money for that two and a half hours in my classroom and i don't think it's too much to say you paid me the money you're going to get your money's worth put your facebook away i mean they're not doing facebook they're doing snapchat or whatever right
0: whatever so it's not to make them you know respect the paper No, no, it's not the feel of the book. (laughs)
3: No, But in some sense, it is to respect the fact you're in the classroom. Mm -hmm. You've got someone up there who's there in front of you. Listen to them. Right. Understand what you're getting.
0: Is there a popular author now currently that you think could rival Shakespeare's popularity in two, three, four hundred years?
3: It's impossible to tell, isn't it? I have no way of telling. I mean, there are there are authors whom I really love. I don't know very much about play. So, so, you know, I don't study modern um, literature. So, but even if I did study, I would argue that I wouldn't know because what my generation thinks is fantastic is not necessarily going to be what the future generations think. So we have, for example, Measure for Measure was one of Shakespeare's most popular um, plays at the time it was very popular or All's Well That Ends Well. The king actually had a copy of it and, you know, wrote notes in the margin. Boy, I can't teach All's Well That Ends Well now. just not interested. Measure yeah. for Measure, yes, I can teach that. They love it. But things change.
0: So, Mary, what Shakespearean play doesn't get written and revisited as often?
3: One really interesting one is The Tempest. You know, The Tempest is uh, the story of the magician on the island, and he's been usurped by his brother. And it has, you know, fairies, magic, all kinds of things. It doesn't get rewritten as much. It's one of his late plays. But when it is rewritten, it's absolutely brilliant. So I would love to see more rewritings of The Tempest.
0: Now, refresh my memory. What's The Tempest about?
3: The Tempest, I mean, it's hard to say what it's about. But it is viewed as the play probably in which Shakespeare talks most about himself. So the, the key person on the island is a magician, and he can create anything. He can create an illusion. And a lot of that language people looked at and said, Shakespeare is talking about his ability to create things on the stage and absolutely blow you away. And at the end, uh, Prospera, the musician, says, I'm going to drown my books, and I'm going to break my staff. And you know, not far off after that, Shakespeare retired. And he went off, and he farmed sheep, <laughs> kind of got in little squabbles with his neighbors, we don't have any sign that he went on writing. There are no poems from that period. There are no plays. He went home. He had a nice, presumably kind of a nice time when his when his uh, will was proved. He only left his wife his second best bed. So I'm not <laughs> sure it was all happy on the home front. But the fact is, he drowned his books and he broke his staff. And so The Tempest is a tremendously interesting play about someone with power. The power to create who stops creating.
0: I'd like to thank my guest, Professor Mary Bly. I'd also like to thank my producer, Dan Murphy. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscape, for next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.
3: Juliet says, hey, it's Romeo. You nearly
2: give me a heart attack. He's underneath the window. She's singing." I'm my boyfriend's back You shouldn't come around here singing up at people like that Anyway, what you gonna do about it? Juliet, the dice was loaded from the start And I bet many you exploded